You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. The prayer, arrest me, grab a hold of me, tie me into what is important, is a great place to uh, transition into our sermon for today. We're in the midst of a three-week series called Held Together, where we're looking at... um, Kind of exploring the, that, that line that St. Paul uses in our call to worship from Colossians 1, that, that in Jesus Christ all things cohere, all things hold together. And we're looking at what does it mean to live in this fragmenting and fragmented world and to draw our source of meaning from that phrase. To understand that in spite of the fragments that we are held together by and All things are held together by Jesus Christ. What does it look like to live in this fragmenting world in light of that principle? In some ways, that's what every sermon is about, or we would hope so at least. But the reality that we want to unpack here is the one that St. Paul is living in in the first century. And just three texts in uh, 2 Corinthians that demonstrate the way in which he was pointing the attention of the Corinthian church toward this truth that in, all, that in Jesus Christ all things cohere, and he was doing so in the midst of their accusations and their criticisms of him that he wasn't very good at holding it together. And so invariably what Paul does in these texts is to remind them to redirect their attention to the truth that is bigger than himself and how he has performed among them, and to try and call their attention to the truth that unifies all of us, and that is that in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. Today's text in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is a continuation of where we left off last week. It, in some ways, is a continuation of that rhetorical question that Paul asks, who is sufficient for these things? Because Paul is criticized often by the Corinthian church in, in many ways, but one of the criticisms that is leveled against him is that he does not have the qualifications to be an apostle. And so he writes this uh, to them, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Surely we do not need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you, do we? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show us that you are a letter of Christ prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our competence is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, in these minutes, remind us of the truth that you have written your name on our hearts and ours on yours. 
that our belonging to you is what gives shape and substance to our lives. Help us to rest in that place rather than to live in the anxiety of feeling that it is all on us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In September, my wife Marianne and I will send our, uh, actually both kids, off to higher education. My daughter to her freshman year, my son to start a, um, a Ph.D. down in Santa Barbara at UCSB. And we are sending my son, our son Justin with um, our, our 91 Volvo station wagon, which we are bequeathing to him. Great gift, you know. Um, <laughs> Have fun with that. Uh, uh, and um, he's actually quite excited about that, and that's good. Uh, uh, but it reminds me of, of the car that I was driving when I started seminary, which also was about 20 years old. And so giving him that car has reminded me of the way that my family gave me that the car that I drove at that time. And um, it was equally a... a, a a prize, but also um, a dubious uh, prize. And um, the car that I had was a 1963 Chevrolet uh, pickup. Uh, for those of you that are automotive aficionados, it was a short bed, flat side, straight six, with three on the tree. <laughs> And the thing about uh, that car, it wasn't fast, but it was pretty dependable and pretty simple. Um, uh, but uh, the thing about that car was the, the gear shift being there on the steering column in that traditional H pattern, you know, reverse uh, up uh, and to you, uh, first down and to you, second uh, away from you and up, third down and uh, away from you. That, that H pattern, um, you know, it's easy enough to remember. But the weird thing about this car is that it, as it aged um, was that if you weren't careful after maybe downshifting toward an intersection up into second and then you stopped and then you went to put it in first to, to go again, if you weren't careful to follow the H pattern very, very specifically and try and sort of draw it down on an angle, well, it would get hung up. And it would get hung up in a way that you couldn't fix from inside the car. You had to get out of the car <laughs> and open the hood and take this crowbar and kind of mess with the linkage, uh, the transmission linkage that connected uh, from the steering column, you know, and, um, and then kind of move it back into neutral manually that way, close the hood, hopefully take the crowbar with you uh, rather than leaving it in the engine compartment. And... Uh, get back in the car and, and go. Uh, you know, it's, it's an easy fix. But you have to remember that in most cases when you're coming to the stop, uh, a stop at an intersection at a signal, there are usually cars behind you and in front of you. And um, if you made the mistake of, of drawing that down on an angle rather than following the H pattern very deliberately, well, you you would have uh, relatively unhappy people behind you um, when that happened. You know, so people would ask me, hey, can we borrow your truck to move? And I'd say, well, yeah, let me tell you something about that. Um, you got to do this stuff, and if it, if it happens that it gets hung up, then you have to do these things. And, 
And usually there'd be a pause on the phone and they'd say, yeah, well, okay, we'll get back to you uh, on whether or not we need that. (laughs) A lot of life, just like the teacups last week, is like managing the broken pieces like on that 63 Chevy pickup. A lot of life is about knowing where the solutions are to the quick fixes, managing broken pieces that that are never quite repaired, but if we figure out how to just tweak them a little bit, we can can hold it all together. It's better to know how to avoid the problem by tweaking it in that way than it is to have to get out of the car and fix it, in other words. It's better to know that the problem's a possibility than it is to have to run the risk of having to repair it. And it's a a metaphor for, I think, what composes a lot of life in this world. Managing brokenness. Anticipating what could go wrong and and figuring out ways uh, to avoid it. Uh, Holding it together in spite of the things that that are never quite fixed because we have that special bit of knowledge that we know how to keep it together while a lot of people not familiar with it might not. Because you see, the last thing that we want in life, the last thing we want is to be stuck at an intersection with cars behind you honking or passing you with angry looks and gestures that you don't use in good company. Furious with you. Furious with you because you haven't gotten it right. Because you've made life in your brokenness more difficult for them. Well, Paul was in this kind of place with Corinth. He was in such a place where they were saying, you don't get us, Paul. You're you're not very good at anticipating what we need. There are other pastors and preachers and missionaries who have come through here that we like a lot better, like Apollos, for instance, that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians. Because, Paul, you don't quite understand who we are. That was the kind of criticism he was receiving, and and one of the things that, that happened as a result of that is that they also questioned his qualifications to be an apostle. And Paul himself understood this criticism. Because, you see, he himself calls himself the the least of all apostles. He understands that that he was one untimely born, one who was late in coming to the, the parade of apostles. He wasn't with Jesus when Jesus was alive and, and ministering in Galilee. He wasn't with Jesus at his death. He didn't witness Jesus' bodily resurrection. He didn't have any of the qualifications that all of the other apostles had. He was late in coming to it because he was encountered by the living Christ on his way to Damascus. He was blinded on that road and literally invited to see Jesus in a way that he had not before seen him in that blindness. And so Paul understands this criticism. Paul himself understands his own inadequacy in that way. And he owns it in several places throughout the New Testament. But what the Corinthian church was doing was like rubbing salt in a wound or pouring lemon juice in in uh, an abrasion. 
They were reminding him of what he already knew about his own innate inadequacy, his own uh, inability to be fully adequate. And calling his attention to something that really wasn't the essence of who Paul was. And so much of Paul's work in 2 Corinthians and, and also in 1 Corinthians, for that matter, is a defense of himself and his ministry And yet as he defends his ministry, he has to be careful not to succumb to the other charge, which is that he's prideful and and boastful and and constantly um, trying to justify himself in their presence. So Paul is between one major rock and a hard place. And the only way you get out of that kind of place is to understand that you're not really the center of the problem. And that's what he does. He understands that in spite of his lapses, in spite of of his inability to come through for the the Corinthians in a way that they needed him to come through, in the way that they needed him to hold it together, that there was a bigger issue in play. And he keeps calling their attention to that bigger issue. And it's the kind of thing that we need to hear when we're living in estrangement in relationships of, of any kind and and we are being seen as the problem, that the best thing to do is to try to understand that both our critics and ourselves fit into a bigger picture. And that's what Paul does. And so he starts out with that great line, So, Corinth, are we beginning to commend ourselves again to you? You've got to remember, Paul was... Dictating these letters, uh, and I, I picture him pacing up and down and, and in an absolute frustration saying, so are we beginning to commend ourselves to you again? Are we succumbing to the, to the very thing that you're criticizing us about? Do we need, says Paul, letters of recommendation from you or to you? And in essence, what he says to them is that those letters wouldn't do any good. Those letters wouldn't ultimately solve the problem. Those letters wouldn't repair the relationship or or justify my existence among you. Those letters wouldn't prove anything worth proving. For the issue is not really whether or not I'm qualified or whether the right people have determined that to be so, says Paul. The proof of our qualifications is not the point in this ministry. The point here is whether or not the gospel has taken root in you, Corinth. Because, you see, we don't need letters of recommendation. You are our letter. The gospel has either been written upon your hearts or not. And that will will show forth in time. That will show forth through relationship. That will show forth through your behavior and through ours. In other words, the truth will ultimately come out. And we'll see that it's not a matter of who I am or am not, or who you are or are not. It's a matter of whether or not we understand and appropriate the reality that we belong to one who is bigger than both of us and sees us differently than either of us see one another. The point here is whether or not the gospel has taken root among you. 
Because there's only one proof that can vindicate our work among you, says Paul. And that is the gospel written on your hearts. It's never about our qualifications. It's always been about our participation in a work that is bigger than us. So open your hearts, Corinth, to the bigger work. And then he goes on in that last portion of this text and talks about confidence. Let me read that again for us. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He says the same thing in a different way. The source of our confidence is not our qualifications, is not our own innate wonderfulness, is not our ability to either make you grasp this or not even. The source of our confidence is God's work in you and in us in spite of our inadequacy. Our confidence doesn't come from a good approval rating among you, Corinth. Our confidence comes because we know that God is at work irrespective of how well or how poorly we do this. And what will come out in the final analysis is whether or not that work has been going on. So our confidence to be among you and minister and risk failure in your eyes comes from knowing that God is at work in you whether you like us or not. Do you see the freedom this gives us? Do you see the freedom this gives us in all of our relationships to entrust another to the work of God and understand that even though we may have failed, even though they might view us as having failed and we don't see it, that we are absolutely free to entrust those people from whom we are estranged into the hands of God and hold on to them in relationship nevertheless. Nevertheless. It's the freedom to trust that God is at work in spite of us. It's the freedom to understand that because we are held in the arms of God, so are those in, in whom and among whom we are uh, related and, and, and among whom we work. One of the things that I say in the, the, marriage, uh, the pre-marriage talk that I give every single time we have a Life Together class, which now is about 15 years uh, of classes and three times a year, is that the the gift of of a relationship that is rooted and grounded in the hope of Jesus Christ is the knowledge that even when you don't feel like holding on to your partner, even when there is estrangement, you are never far from one another because God is still holding on to both of you. And that is Paul's point here. The freedom to hold on to people in relationship comes even in estrangement because God is at work nevertheless. That's the perspective of the kingdom. That's what inspires gentleness among us in our relationships. It's the freedom from making life about managing and holding together broken pieces and trying to have it all together for ourselves and for others because we trust that the job of holding things together is in someone else's hands. Not ours. 
It's freedom because we know that our incompetence and our inadequacy are not the last word. Because we know that life is not simply about creating a resume that effectively covers up our mistakes and the misunderstandings that we might be involved in. Life is not about managing or holding together the broken pieces, but it's about entrusting ourselves to the one who is redeeming all of that and putting those pieces together in a way that we could not even dream about. Paul had the ability to teach it because he lived it. When he writes to the Philippians at the end of his life, he gives us a little synopsis of his life in the third chapter of Philippians. And he says essentially, you know, under one way of viewing life, the way of the letter, the way of the law, I had it all together. But in Christ, all of that means nothing now compared to what I've gained in him. He says it this way. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, confident in and of myself and what I can do apart from God, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I had the resume. I was perfect by those standards. And guess what, says Paul? Whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own under the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from Christ that is based on faith. Paul says, I had the resume. I had that piece of paper that integrated all of the pieces of my life and proved that I was worthy according to one perspective in life. But what I've learned is that holding together the pieces under my own power is nothing compared to being held together by Jesus Christ. It's nothing compared to being found in him. So you see, friends, the great gift of facing our inadequacy, the great gift of incompetence, is humility. And there's a great freedom in humility. There's a great freedom in admitting our vulnerability. Because you see, when we have nothing to protect, when we have nothing to prove, we're ready to be loved by God and we're ready to learn how to love one another. Because all of us are in this same reality. The reality of apprehending our inadequacy, but also the reality of understanding that we have been apprehended by God. Drawn together in Him. 
And so what humility produces among us is an open heart. Paul says the same in, in the sixth chapter of 2 Corinthians where he says, Corinthians, our, our hearts are open wide to you. Open wide your hearts to us as well. We have nothing to hide. We are as inadequate as you claim. But there is one who is adequate. And let's focus our attention on him. To have an open heart ushers us off life's treadmill. That treadmill of dedicating our waking hours to the task of trying to prove our value. But our value does not lie in those attempts. Our value lies not in our achieving, but in our belonging to the one who is making all things new. Let's pray. Lord, keep us in your care. Teach us to hear your voice and to understand that source of our confidence that we belong to you and then empower us to move out in that confidence to share the light of that freedom with our world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.